welcome to the Death Science Podcast, where we explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. Please like, share, and subscribe to support. You can find the audio on all major podcast platforms by searching for Death Science Podcast. You can find the video on YouTube at www.catacomb.tv. Learn more about the show at deathscience.org. Welcome to episode number 10. Today's guest is Ken West. He's an author, historian, bereaved services manager from Great Britain. We'll be talking about topics like how the United Kingdom differs from the United States when it comes to burial practices, also the benefits of green burial, and his historical findings about Stonehenge and pagan cultures, and a lot more. But before we get started, I want to talk about catacombculture.com. This is where I sell my sculptures, my sculptures being functional home decor that I make of hyper-realistic human bones. From human bone lamps to food-safe skull bowls, I make a lot of memento mori-friendly pieces that serve as reminders that our lifespans are limited, so let's make the best of the time we have left. You can explore my bone gallery at catacombculture.com. Also, restinggrounds.org will guide you in exploring alternative post-life care for your deceased body. Your deceased body has the potential to literally save lives, advance multiple fields of science, and so much more. Learn more at restinggrounds.org. Now let's meet Ken and explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. Today, I'm here with Ken West. He is a retired bereavement services manager in the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and uh, he's an author and historian. Welcome to the catacombs, Ken. How you doing? Thank you, Jeremy. What got you started into the whole bereavement services management business? Well, the only thing I was sort of interested in at school was horticulture. So I went to work in a plant nursery situated in a cemetery at Shrewsbury in Shropshire. I noticed you wrote a book about natural burial. So based on your experiences in the um, bereavement management, uh, how do you see uh, natural burial differ from traditional burial? Well, uh, that's slightly complicated because your traditional burial tends to be in concrete chambers, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, our natural, our burial over here tends to be in churchyards and cemeteries, and we bury straight into the earth. Uh, we don't like concrete chambers here at all, mm. catacombs, as it were. Um, and so um, the idea behind natural burial. I mean, really, when I started it in 1990, we were more concerned about the waste of resources, coffins, all these sort of things. And we wanted a, a style of burial that enabled us to go over to cardboard coffins or woolen shrouds and then also to put the body back into nature. Um, rather than um, cemeteries tend to be very um disciplined environments as it were you know rows of headstones this sort of thing <laughs> yeah. um, natural burial was to hit back at that really mm. so you mentioned that there's a difference between the united states and great britain do you want to talk about the differences that you've noticed well the differences are that um uh, in in the u.s um you've tended to be much more commercial 
And mm. so commercial cemeteries, of course, are very much into selling memorials. Mm. Yep. Um, so if you've got a concrete chamber below ground with a couple of coffins in, that then supports a big memorial on the top. And that was very much the pattern here in the Victorian era when uh, the first joint stock companies opened up selling memorials. But those sort of cemeteries quickly became very derelict and difficult to maintain. Mm. And so local councils then provided cemeteries, and these local councils, of course, were in public ownership. Um, and so they tended to move towards having um, lawns, small headstones, this sort of thing. Um, and then maintenance really became the priority rather than what the bereaved might want, you know, in the way of a big memorial and a, a smart inscription and everything. Mm, yep. Yeah, definitely here in the United States, it's a tremendous, tremendous waste of resources. It just, it's incredible. I, uh, I did some research. I recently gave a, a lecture about like alternative burial options that a lot of people overlook. And yeah, one of them was natural burial and how it's just returning to the earth in the most environmentally friendly way possible. And it sounds like that's uh, the mainstream over in Great Britain where you're at, where it's just you just bury the individual and there's no concrete burial vault needed, no fancy caskets that people are trying to sell you. So. No, that's right. No, we've got the, the huge selection now of cardboard coffins, seagrass coffins, <sighs> bamboo, wicker. And um, as you say, we tend to do the burial as... Uh, as shallow as we can to keep the body nearer the surface. There, there are laws controlling that, although they're mm. rather vague. Um, mm. And then, and then we want the the environment to be um, t the priority, really. So what you then want is to grow wildflowers, possibly trees on the grave, increase the depth of the turf on the grave, so that it also holds a lot of carbon. It becomes a carbon sink. Hmm. So if you put the turf on the grave, the sod as it were, I don't know whether you call it turf or a sod over there. Yeah, turf, yeah, ground, turf. dirt, yeah. The, the turf or sod can can be as um, a carbon sink equivalent to the tree. Hmm. So the two running together are really valuable, and then added to that, of course, you get all the biodiversity that arises as well. What do your burial laws look like over in Great Britain? The burial laws are a right mess. <laughs> Most, uh, the, the early burial laws, Cemetery Clauses Act 1847, they generally apply to joint stock private companies. And then all of those cemetery companies, almost all, I think there's only about three left now, they all became bankrupt, went into receivership. And so the laws that were developed were basically developed for local authorities, public authorities. And so we've got a situation now where if somebody opens up a private natural burial ground, it is effectively outside most of the law. Mm. The, 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 the laws don't apply. Um, the, the laws for local authorities only apply to local authorities. And so if you're not a local authority, they're not applicable. So it's very vague and, and, and very complex. But it, with the usual British fudge, we just sort of get along by ignoring that. 
say if an uh, audience member who's living in Great Britain or the UK or wherever, they wanted to get buried in one of Great Britain's natural burial cemeteries, uh, tell me about how they would go about doing that and is there like a uh, time restraint? Because here in the United States, there's a 24-hour, you know, ticking time, <laughs> essentially, that people have to be buried, like a time window that people have to be buried in between in or else they they might need to be embalmed so tell me a little bit about how one would go about getting a uh, natural burial in great britain right well the the bereaved family just have an immediate option of natural burial cremation or conventional burial um and there's a mixture of private and charitable in all of those areas if I take the area I'm in at the moment, this is Christchurch, Dorset, I've got two private natural burial grounds fairly adjacent to where I live. I can simply ring them up and both of those, because they're private, will also act as my funeral director. So I can do the burial anytime I want. There's no urgency and we would often wait a week to a fortnight here and in with most natural burial grounds, they would prohibit embalming, so it couldn't take place. So the body will be refrigerated and the family have got plenty of time. And that's quite valuable because most of the people will go to a celebrant today. They won't go to a Church of England or uh, a religious minister. They'll go to a celebrant, so it gives them time to call in a celebrant and then construct the service. Yeah, here it's uh, it's almost like they don't give you the refrigeration option. It's like they want to stick you with uh, as much embalming fluid as they can, because like like it's um, yeah, it's just fascinating to hear the social differences between uh, the United States, like here in Pennsylvania where I'm at, and uh, in Great Britain where you're at, and it's just natural burial cemeteries are very uncommon here which is pretty upsetting to me personally because it's it's such a beautiful thing to just you know decay the natural way I, I i think what happened here is during the 90s we had a a lot of information about embalming and a number of funeral directors um um raised their heads above the parapet to say that they got some very vague cancers and they thought it had come from their, their lifetime of embalming. And so a lot of funeral directors, actually, especially the independent ones, don't like embalming anymore at all. Mm. And in most cases, they simply won't advise it anymore. It's only when you go to the big firms like Dignity or the co-op or whatever that they'll um, assume that you might want embalming. And they, they may sort of push you that way without you realizing it. Is there is what would you say in Great Britain? Is it mostly natural burial, or is there still like more traditional kind of embalming and caskets? What, what do you think the consensus is there? No, natural burial is very small. It's probably between five and eight percent of the market. The majority of the market is cremation. Mm. We're tending to go over a lot more to direct cremation at the moment which basically means that a company comes out, picks the body up, takes it to a crematorium and cremates it, then gives you the ashes back, and then you hold the service over the ashes. Mm -hmm. And for a number of people, that service will then be in a natural burial ground, and they'll put the ashes beneath the tree. Now, the embalming rate, that is very difficult. Nobody knows what that is. It's, it's possibly something like 50-50. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. As for your American caskets, they are generally fairly violently opposed. <laughs> Local authorities don't like them because if you use one of your caskets, you have to dig a much bigger grave. Hmm. You then have to put more support into that grave to stop it collapsing because the casket is so much bigger, of course. In your opinion, what would you say uh, is holding people back most about natural burial? I think that it's because cremation started to be um, promoted by atheists, humanists, the non-religious, doctors, all these sort of people as the sensible way forward because they were thinking about the alternative being Victorian burial with its unsafe memorials and its maintenance liabilities and all of that. Hmm. And so getting people to accept that cremation, in fact, is waste incineration. In my talks, I talk about it as it's waste incineration. The cremators, the manufacturers, they are all into the, exactly the same product. They either make a waste incinerator or they make a cremator. There is no difference. Hmm. And so it's very odd that people are so opposed in some areas, if you proposed a waste incinerator, you will get a 99.9% .9 objection rate. And yet if you propose a crematorium, you'll get something like an 80% support rate, <laughs> even though it's an identical technology. <laughs> that, that is where the, the sheer level of ignorance is mind-blowing, <sighs> really. Now, is there any concern about the environmental impact of crematories? Oh, yes, a lot of environmental concern. The, we had something called the, um, um, oh, I'm just trying to think, the Environmental Protection Act 1995, and that insisted that we had what's called a two-second dwell time in the cremator. In other words, you had to charge a coffin at a set temperature, 800 degrees centigrade, and there had to be a two-second dwell time. The fumes coming off of the cremation had to be held in the cremator for two seconds at this high temperature, and that reduced dioxins and furans. Mm. Um, the trouble with that is it quadrupled the gas consumption for those cremations, quadrupled it. And we're still following that at the moment. Mm. Um, but it does mean that there's a big argument about whether the dioxins and the furans reform after the fumes leave the chimney stack. But certainly what you don't get at the moment is smoke. You don't see visible smoke at most crematoria nowadays. Is the Great Britain exploring any alternatives? Have you heard about, was it aquamation? Yes, I've heard of resumation, um, oh. water cremation. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have looked into most of those, but um, it's very difficult to get genuine information from them. And also, they are so slippery. Whenever I uh, approach them, and I have done a number of times, I've always said to them, where did you get your conventional cremation gas consumption figures from? Because <laughs> they always claim that there's a massive reduction in gas usage or fuel usage but then they won't tell you where they got the original figures from. Because, in fact, there's a number of public crematoria here that, for instance, if they receive your coffin, say, at 4 o'clock today, they do what we call holdover. 
and they will hold the coffin till the following day and when they open up a cremator that cremator will be run for a minimum 12 hours um, and many of the coffins will be eco coffins and we know that they can reduce their fuel consumption by say somewhere between 40 and 60 percent and so these other alternative schemes may not in fact be showing any saving at all against this option <laughs> see what I mean yeah oh yeah so there is also um, the resumation scheme where of course the problem with that is that they have a, a couple of hundred gallons of fluid that they need to dispose of mm. and that fluid contains fats and proteins and there's a big argument about whether that should go down the sewage system Ooh. and also when those cremated remains are given back to you they weigh um, something like 30 pounds 15 Ooh. kilograms Wow! And, and also because they've not been incinerated they are then attractive potentially to foxes and rats and whatever mm. And so they can't be strewn on the surface of the ground, which is what we would normally do with a lot of cremated remains. They have to be buried. Oh, I see. I see. So then potentially you're, you're having your resumation, your new kind of cremation, but then you've got to pay for a burial as well afterwards. So not only have you got two charges, you've got two um, uses of energy. Um, everything about it is, um, uh, you know, is... Um, uh, disputable really tell us a little bit more about your uh, your career path your journey through the um, bereavement services management well I started off as a, a horticultural trainee in Shrewsbury and one of the things I did was to start applying all those wonderful chemicals that you sent over to us <laughs> you you called them agent orange <laughs> <laughs> In Vietnam oh. I actually applied um, uh, these different chemicals um, on what was hay meadow that had been scythed since Victorian times and I effectively killed that meadow I didn't know what I was doing and all my bosses they all knew better than me um, the chemicals as I say were brought in from America and then we started mowing the grass and we sacked all the scythers the men the old men who'd done the scything we sacked them and then what happened that happened all over the UK there was a complete crashing of barn owls and they haven't recovered to this day now what I then understood as I went through my management career in various places that I worked in is that I could take old cemetery areas stop the mowing and there was still that Victorian meadow there and if I allowed it to recover over the summer um, we, we then found that we got the vole numbers back, the grasshoppers back, the um, um, hedgehogs and the voles and then suddenly it brought back the barn owls. Nice. They actually came back to these uh, areas that I managed so this is what took me back to natural burial. Mm. A number of people used to come on my cemetery walks and they sort of said well you know why can't we be buried in an environment like this where you don't cut the grass you allow all the wonderful British wildflowers to develop and I said no, okay I'll, I'll think about that and that of course was why I designed the the uh, natural burial scheme 
So what would you say the death culture is like in Britain? Because here in America, we are shrouded in this uh, death denial almost. This death denial culture that, you know, we our families, we don't talk about death. We almost don't even acknowledge death. We live with this idea that we are all immortal, you know. So uh, is uh, Britain similar or is it different in a way? No, it's very similar, Jeremy. Um, we have a very low number of people with wills made out. Mm. Um, so you can see immediately that even when people are, have a partner who is virtually on death's door, they don't actually talk about what they want after death. And of course, I know, working in the business, how that feeds into the difficulties they have in arranging the funeral. If you've spoken to the person who's died before they died, you know what they want. The satisfaction that's given over to the survivors is absolutely phenomenal. And this is where I try to win out with natural burial. If I, Natural burial is a lovely subject to go and talk to people about. They don't really think you're going to come and talk about death. They think you're going to talk about creating new life in the way of owl. <laughs> yeah. So you sneak in and only latterly do you say, now, of course, if you want this, you must make certain you arrange for it before you die. Yeah. And so I've had that rather sneaky way of getting in there and um, uh, influencing people that way. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I recently did a, a TEDx talk here in Scranton, and uh, it was just fascinating because um yeah, like I mentioned, I live in this culture of death denial where people don't talk about it, but yet it's always like in the back of everyone's head. And so everyone, you know, they come up before my talk and say like, oh, they're so excited to hear what I have to say. Because in the talk, I spoke on, you know, alternatives to uh, uh, death, where it's like a post-life legacy as what I called it where you know path one could be a body donation whether it's organ donation or full body donation to a medical institute for education and research and then uh, other like um, uh, artistic embodiment where it's like allowing artists to create new things like have you seen the uh, the traveling plastination museum show that's pretty interesting yeah pretty Spent four hours in there. Oh my god! <laughs> four That's hours awesome. of life uh, early last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm dying to uh, go see that in person. That just looks <laughs> fascinating. Oh, and then the the last path I spoke on was natural burial, how it's uh, an, a low cost alternative because here in the United States, it's an easy like eight thousand dollars that you're almost obligated to pay at a funeral home, and that's that's not right. You know, everyone has to die. I feel like death is almost a right. You know, <laughs> so it's death should be free to a certain extent for those that need that. Yes, you're right. If you go to Australia, uh, I've spoken in Australia on natural burial, and they've taken the U.S. course, really, with their funerals. Oh, no. And their their funeral costs have gone up through the roof as well compared to Britain's. Wow. I'll, I'll tell you what is interesting. When I'm doing my history and I look at this prehistory period, um, you always find that the archaeologists, nobody will talk about, well, where did all the bodies go? Because the number of bodies we find is infinitesimal. And we know where they went. They went to excarnation. They were fed to the birds. Yep. But nobody wants to say that. 
and people, you know, because first of all, it's got all these associations with being pagan. So that is very much anti the church. So there's a Christian element to mm. this as well. Um, so you can see how difficult it gets. So when I do my history talks, I actually show, you know, the potential way in which they did excarnation. Mm -hmm. And would you believe that just adjacent to me here, we have the Isle of Wight. They've just released six sea eagle chicks on the island. And these sea eagles apparently belong in this area. And clearly these sea eagles used to feed regularly on our corpses. Hmm. But can you get anybody to talk seriously <laughs> about this? No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I'm familiar with uh, the Tibetan sky burial tradition where they uh, right. cut up the corpses and leave them out for the vultures to take them up to the sky. Now, have you encountered any other cultures that do similar things where they feed their corpses back to nature and leave their bodies out for the scavengers to find? No, no, it, it simply doesn't happen. Mm. Um, and I think it's because of these pagan associations, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, the, the Romans identified this sort of thing, you know, exposing bodies as paganism, and that really has stuck with us um, all the way through. So you're also into digging up history of various cultures. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that, some of your findings? That's partly because um, in my street here, in fact, uh, not a couple of hundred yards away from me right now, in our street is a Bronze Age grave. Mm. It's been turned into a little park. We have quite a number of these graves in this area. And that probably dates from about 1500 BC. And I walked past it when I moved here about eight years ago, and I imagine some Bronze Age warrior rising up out of the grave. In fact, Jeremy, it could just as easily be a woman because a lot of women have been bedded in these graves. Mm -hmm. I imagine this Bronze Age warrior coming up, he speaks to me, and then I don't understand a word he says. <laughs> and it struck me that we know so little about our forebears. And so I've presented this picture of how people walked here to this part of England because it was a particularly rich part of England when they were hunter-gatherers. They walked here from Spain along the French coast. And Britain then was attached to the continent, of course, before the sea levels rose. Mm. They took up uh, occupation here. And then because they went into horticulture, which is my subject, in 4000 BC, I can talk about them as a horticulturalist rather than an, uh, an archaeologist. Um, and along the rivers here, we've got two important rivers that unite where I live. And on both of those rivers, they had water meadows and very light silt soils that could be worked by hand. And so this really um, um, valuable culture developed here. And they created a food surplus. And the representation of that food surplus is, of course, Stonehenge. Mm. Yep. Because they had a food surplus, they could build Stonehenge, which is something that didn't happen all over the rest of Europe. Now, do you have any speculations as to how Stonehenge was built? Um, I don't think there needs to be much speculation. I think that um, we understand now that um, they spent a couple of months each year from about 3000 BC. It took them 500 years to put Stonehenge into the shape it's in now. They reconfigured it about four times. 
they took 500 years and they clearly did bring some of the stones from Wales, the blue stones, 80 of them, and then they pulled another 80 of what we call the sarsen stones, about 35 miles, to get them to Stonehenge before they actually built the monument. Wow. And the monument really is all about the sun and the moon, and it's about the importance of the sun and the moon to horticulture mm. and also to wood because wood was a very important substance to the economy in those days. And so all these things sort of come together at Stonehenge, really. Tell me a little bit about uh, the pagan uh, culture that you've discovered. I can't say that I've discovered much about the pagan culture because we know so little about it. Mm. Um, what is evident is that it was an animist culture. It was based on um, creatures... It was also based on the sun and the moon, um, and it was obviously based on horticulture because they didn't build these constructions when they were hunter-gatherers. They only built these constructions when they became horticulturalists and what we later then called farmers. But it took them a couple of thousand years to get to become farmers, specialist mm -hmm. farmers as it were. And so as horticulturalists, they've got sort of a little bit of the hunter-gatherer in them because they're still gathering a lot of their food but they're also transferring over to the importance of harvests you know the importance of, of rainfall which is always good here and the ability to produce crops every year and those crops then become their winter food store and there is a lot of evidence now that when they held their ceremonies at Stonehenge they they held massive feasts and they wasted lots of food much like the potlatch indians did over on your west coast mm. um they wasted food because it was their way of impressing all the other tribes look how strong we are we can actually eat a bit of the food we can throw <laughs> it away loads of pork loads of beef um so that that seems to be the sort of culture that was here and those same people, when the Romans arrived, and this is effectively 4,000 years later, really, from when the first horticulturalists came, the Romans gave them the name the Durotrigas, and that meant dwellers by water and seaside. And so they were what we call a riverine culture. Mm. Their, their entire life was dependent upon the sea leading into rivers, and the rivers were their means of communication inland. And Stonehenge is on one of those rivers, the River Avon. And so you can sort of see how this sort of culture is building up slowly but surely. Yeah. So how did you go about researching prehistoric events? With a lot of difficulty. <laughs> and I think one of the things that was useful for me was uh, my understanding of bereavement and death. Hmm. Because, you know, I understand ceremonies, I know how all the different religions operate with regard to death. And you're trying to draw some parallels with what they were doing. For instance, when we, when we dig um, uh, any archaeological dig in Britain, we find what's called disarticulated bones. So we will find a skull on its own, yeah. or a large leg bone or arm bone. And the rest of the body's not there. 
And so then it starts to occur to you that these bones were probably inside or over the portal of their hats. That meant that they wanted to retain bones from however they disposed of the bodies, so they couldn't do sky burial, Tibetan style, because with that form of burial, you have to smash up the entire body, including all the bones, mm. because the vultures must eat every gram of, of the body. But mm. here, it looks like what we wanted was excarnation. We put the bone out, the body out, we let the birds feed on it until such time that we can take out the skull or some of the large bones and we can wash them and cleanse them and then keep them as part of our contact with the previous generation. And so these collections of bones seem to be held and seem to be able to link you know, the previous generations with the current generations with future generations. Mm. And so in a sense they have a sort of form of religion through the bones uh, and it all sounds really quite sophisticated when you look at it. It doesn't seem pagan, if, if that's the right word. Sure, sure. All right, well, before we wrap up this interview, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say or talk on? No, I don't think so, Jeremy. I, I, I think what I would say to you is uh, one of the things I mention in my book is that when somebody needs an operation in Britain through the NHS, try and get a surgeon who practiced on a donated body. <laughs> the ones that don't practice on a donated Ooh, body are yeah. simply not as good. Right, right. Yeah. I've, actually, I've actually been to a hospital, Hammersmith, where they had just mounted three heads uh, on um, small holders so that um, brain surgeons were coming in to actually practice going through the nose into the skull oh. and if they hadn't been able to do that they couldn't possibly know how how um, how to gain that expertise yeah yeah it's here in the United States it's uh, though it's commonly overlooked but there's always a need for a good uh, body donation for sure to help not only the field of medicine but also forensic research uh, you know safety testing really it, there's endless opportunities for a cadaver to live on beyond its uh, original life it seems odd doesn't it I, I still say in my talks why would you choose cremation and waste the body <laughs> yeah and you're going to oxidize it and turn it into harmful chemicals yeah. whereas if you have donated it or at the very least you then choose natural burial you put the body back and it feeds a tree and it feeds the environment effectively and then spiritually there's a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence isn't there that our molecules get from the body into the trees and the shrubs and the plants actually growing on a natural burial site yeah yeah don't know how long that takes but we're confident that it is happening right right yeah, and also a commonly overlooked um, aspect is also organ donation. It just, uh, yeah, like in my talks as well, I, I talk about people would rather, you know, inject toxins like embalming fluid into their organs and body or burn up their organs, their precious organs in a crem crematory where they could literally be saving lives or enhancing lives of others. And it's just... This, I feel uh, very uh, passionate about getting this information out there to not only help individuals, but to help change the world in a positive light. 
Yes, that, that's true. Uh, I'm, I'm just minded to think that um, with sky burial, you know, it's failing in Tibet, of course, because mm. it takes one diplofenac tablet <laughs> to kill a vulture. Mm. That's all it takes. One diplofenac tablet. You know, we we can, you know, we can we've got the ability, haven't we, to do so much good, mm -hmm. um, or we can take the option of doing quite a bit of harm, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there was um, there was a lot of talk back in the nineties of how much mercury was, was getting from the body through tooth fillings, was getting into the North Sea, and can be found in plaice and cod and other fish, whitefish coming out of the North Sea that we were subsequently eating. Oh, what? From tooth fillings? Yeah, from tooth fillings, the oh, mercury wow. in, in mercury amalgam. And the Europeans, because we were in the EU, the Europeans made Britain responsible for oh. removing mercury. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a monumental job. Oh well, when you think about it, they used to say mad as a hatter. Yeah. And that was the mercury that the hatters used to get from putting oh. the silvering on feathers in hats. Oof. They used to they used to go mad. Oh wow. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, is there where can people learn more about you? They need to go onto my website, um, StonehengePensioner.com. Okay. Um, and I try to keep that updated really on burial as well as the historical elements. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, thank you for all that you do. Fine, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching the Death Science Podcast. For updates and new episodes, subscribe right now. It's quick at deathscience.org. Remember that we all must die one day, so talk to your loved ones now about your post-life plans for your body. Learn more about creative and beneficial post-life plans at restinggrounds.org. I'm your host, Jeremy, signing off. Thank you, and memento mori.